Welcome to Ottawa Valley Vineyard, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share his love. Okay, so uh, if you haven't figured it out already, I am not Pastor Aaron. Uh, he is over there doing the STEPS program. You've already heard about that. So that's, uh, that's great. So that's what he's doing today. So it falls on me. My role this morning is I'm going to introduce you guys to this new series that we're going to do. That's exciting. That's the first time for me. And then introduction. Then we're going to jump into the first piece of this opening text together. And then we're going to corporately, I guess I already said this, we're going to sit under it and kind of dive into and say, okay, well, what can we learn from this together? Together, corporately, what is Jesus saying to us? Uh, so I guess an opening question is we can say, okay, so if someone came to you, just imagine this, right? Someone comes to you and they say, hey, what is Christianity about? And you know that they're looking for like a one or two sentence answer. How do you answer that? Just think about it for like one, two, three, four seconds. What would you say? I think somewhere in that inner core of truth is God the Father sent God the Son, the Word, who became flesh and dwelt among us. And he lived among us in the power of God the Spirit. And he died for our sins and was raised again on the third day. That's probably, I think you're going to be hard-pressed to identify something that is, that is more central than that kind of phrase. And that central and that core truth, you know, it revolves around Jesus coming and it revolves around his death and it revolves around his resurrection, right? And so when you look at the Christian calendar, that this has been embedded, kind of like the centrality of this is kind of like embedded in the Christian calendar. And so that's where we see Easter. And that's where we see the time leading up to Easter. We've mentioned Lent already this morning. So Lent is uh, kind of this thing that it's 40 days, roughly, that corresponds, you know, it's set with the coming of spring. And so as the snow kind of thaws away, you have new life coming. And it's kind of like at the pinnacle of this season where you see, uh, well, winter is not death, but you could metaphorically say it is. As you see death melt away, you see new life come forth, and you see Easter as this like pinnacle point of like life, right? And celebratory of the fact that Jesus rose again. And so the 40 days leading up to is traditionally thought of, okay, well, this is the season of Lent. And, uh, you know, it kind of remembers the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness before the start of his ministry. Okay, so when you talk Lent, there's obviously, I'm going to identify that there's a huge rabbit hole right here that we could go into and that I'm not going to step in. So, uh, there is a whole rabbit hole of tradition and history and your background and my background and your opinion and uh, yeah, it, like it, there's, there's something big there. So we're not going to go deep. But what I want to say is that as we look at this upcoming season, there's a definite opportunity here, right? So let me kind of highlight why we wanted to do this. And so one of the first reasons, and Aaron touched on it a little bit, is Lent further highlights this central truth of Christian faith, right? The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Paul is going to say, without the resurrection, we are to be pitied above all people. And so I'm going to say it's a good thing 
continue to remind ourselves of this, right? Let's remind ourselves of this central story. Let's continue to mine this central story, this thing that's at the center of our faith. Let's mine that for depth. Let's mine that for life. Let's mine that for power, for transformation, for depth of relationship with Jesus. And Lent is also, Aaron touched on this, a convenient time to create a moment of disruption in our lives. This is something that has the power to break us out of our regular patterns, the, the regular things that we do. So many people during this season, they'll fast from food, and that's now turned into fasting from Netflix or from other pieces. I'm struggling uh, in my own spiritual journey with whether I fast from coffee or not. And so uh, this is not about me, but I'll tell you how that goes. It's hard. Uh, but And this fasting is not bad, right? It creates disruption. And then in that disruption is a possibility for fresh experience with the Spirit of God, a fresh ability for Him to speak into the places where maybe we were hard before. Maybe that disruption opens something up or it uncovers something. And now uh, something is different and we're shaken. So this disruption can be good for us for a number of different reasons, okay? So one thing that it does, it can draw us deeper into self-examination. It can allow us to change where we were stagnant before. It can also serve as a kind of a memory aid. You know, maybe it's calling us back to our first love. Maybe it's calling us back to the very center of our faith calling us back to the God who longs for relationship with us. Times of disruption, it can also kind of uh, deconstruct, that's a scary word, but it can, it can break down maybe frameworks that are unhelpful. It can cause us to come back to the story and say, hey, have I been seeing this right? Is this tradition that I accepted, or did I really meet the person of Jesus here? It can serve as a catalyst for times of change in our life. And so uh, I, I confessed my, my struggle with whether to give up coffee or not. Uh, some of you, uh, so we're, I'm not putting this on you, but if there's maybe, if this is something that draws you, maybe this is a time where you're like, hey, I think I want to create a moment of disruption in my life. I want to create a moment of more intense listening. Or I just want to make a change just to introduce the possibility of maybe some of these things. So you can do that with coffee or with whatever it is that is your particular choice. I'll leave that on you. I won't put that on you. A question that you may have, maybe, okay, this is great, this sounds cool, that's a cool graphic, Matt, I like it. And my answer to that is, well, I did not make it, Aaron is great at this, he sends it to me, I say thank you very much, and I put it on the screen. Um, the other part of your question might be, but how does this connect to spiritual gifts? Weren't we doing a series on spiritual gifts? I came to hear about spiritual gifts. This does not sound like spiritual gifts. Aha, I knew you were bright, you got me. The first half of our spiritual gift series, you may have noticed, it didn't address a lot of the specific gifts, right? We talked about a lot of background things. There was things like, okay, well, why are gifts relevant for today? Okay, well, how do we discern the source of the gift? And then last week in Ecclesiastes, we had an existential crisis that was disconnected from spiritual gifts. And I'm going to hit the slide with my free hand here. And uh, this is kind of a core and a central thing here, a central belief to the way that we're approaching this. We're saying... Well, we're only going to see the gifts operating in their fullness when our relationship with Jesus is in a healthy, real, authentic place. 
<laughs> so everything comes down to the, everything comes down, it boils down, right, to the quality of our relationship with Jesus. That's in spiritual gifts. That's in all of Christian faith. Jesus is at the center. And this period of Lent, right, leading up to Easter, it gives us an opportunity. It gives us the opportunity to use this time to reorient ourselves to the central gospel story. We talked about that. It gives us the chance to shake things up in our lives. Disruptions are good. <laughs> it gives us a chance to re-examine our spiritual state. It gives us the opportunity. Uh, gives us the opportunity to reflect on that first half of the spiritual gift series. It gives us the opportunity to reconnect with Jesus, to go back to the center of our faith, to say, as we think about spiritual gifts, is Jesus at the center? Is my relationship with Jesus in a real, authentic place at the center of all of my spiritual gifts and my interest and my desire for spiritual gifts? And then what it does in our much-anticipated second half of the spiritual gift series is it lets us enter that in a healthy, receptive, open, Jesus-focused way. And so, uh, what's happening? Uh, so today, and then in the coming five weeks, what's going to happen is uh, you're invited to join us as we sit in on the passion narrative of Jesus in the series that we're calling Table Talk an opportunity to sit with Jesus during the Last Supper, to hear his final words with the disciples as he gets ready for his death. Uh, it's an opportunity for us to remember that this is all about Jesus. As we sit under his words leading up to Easter, and in this moment we can also remember that this is a time that all of history was waiting with bated breath waiting for this thing that Scripture presents as the center point of all history. And uh, so with that, we're going to uh, dive into our text. Luke 22, beginning at verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Okay, now, strangely, for a series called Table Talk, uh, we're not actually sitting with Jesus at the table yet, right? Our text this morning is kind of a precursor. It's preparing us for what's coming up next. It's introducing this section. Uh, and so our section, what's happening here, this is Jesus's final opportunity to share with his disciples before their death. This functions a lot like Jesus's last week and testament. Uh, it's like Jesus saying, hey, if you were going to remember one thing, uh, remember this. And so this section that we're diving into is going to be these things that Jesus says, make sure that you understand this. My death is coming. I see it coming. Here's what you need to understand. Here's what you need to keep in mind. Here's what you need to remember, disciples. And that carries over today, right? We call ourselves Christians, Christ ones, followers of Jesus. And so these things are passed on to us. Jesus wants to make sure that we understand these things. 
And so as you just saw, we're not actually getting into any of the actual words of Jesus today. Uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to get oriented to this time. We're going to get oriented to this place so that we can understand. So the time comes when Jesus is actually talking to us at the table and we're sitting with him. We can understand what he's saying. We can understand some of the background so that we know how to, yeah, we just understand because words are actually nothing apart from context. Okay, so today's verse is what they're going to do. They're going to help us understand him. And then there's also some warnings in here some implicit warnings that are going to cause us to examine our heart before we sit down with Jesus. And so uh, one of the important things that is going on in our story is the passion narrative is taking place during one of the most sacred parts of the Jewish calendar, right? There's the Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it commemorates the sparing of Israel's firstborn. It celebrates the release from the captivity in Egypt. It remembers how Israel was passed over by the angel of death. It remembers how Israel was redeemed, Israel's salvation, God, uh, celebrating God's grace, celebrating the fact that God is taking a people for himself, that he hasn't given up on the human race, and that he's like, I will make my name great, and I will show you my greatness, I will show you my goodness, and I will redeem you, and you will show my glory to the ends of the earth. And this is particularly interesting because it's against this backdrop that we glimpse the hearts of the Jewish leadership. There's a holiday going on, and the religious leaders are spending their time obsessing over how to kill Jesus. The Jewish leadership has hated Jesus, and they've been looking to kill him for a while now, but they've been unable to do anything about it, right? They kind of reached this equilibrium. Uh, Jesus is too popular to take any public action against him, uh, at least without causing any major turmoil, so they're stuck in this stalemate. Uh, Jesus has opposed the religious leaders. He's called them out. He's challenged their power. He's challenged their authority. The religious leaders don't like that. They've decided we have to remove this guy. He's dangerous to our power, to our authority, to the things that we have. We're going to kill him. And this, they're stuck. It's a stalemate. They can't actually take any action. And all of this changes in the text that we just read because something happens. Judas steps forward, right? This is the opportunity for an inside job. And this will remove their complications. This is a huge break for the Jewish leadership. Now they, now they can find out, okay, where is Jesus staying? Where is he sleeping? Now they have in-house testimony against Jesus. Hey, this guy lived with Jesus and has been with him for years. And he says that Jesus is like this. So they have a fallback, an excuse. They have in-house testimony. And when it comes to finding an appropriate time, when it comes to, hey, where is Jesus sleeping so that we can get him? They have the inside track. They have someone who knows where Jesus will be. Judas will determine that time. Judas says, yes, I'll do it. I'll tell you. And what they cannot generate on their own all of a sudden becomes possible with this betrayal. And what the Jewish leaders needed, right? was a way beyond the impasse. They needed something to tip the balance in their favor so they could remove this guy. And there's two key players involved in this tipping of the balance. There's two key players that lead to the death of Jesus. This slide is to help you remember what I'm talking about. Judas. 
And so he's the first one, right? First and the most obvious player that tips the balance. And so when he comes before the religious leaders, he's saying, yes, you'll give me a certain amount of money and I'll betray him to you. I agree to this. And this passage, zooming out a little bit, right? This is not just a history lesson, right? This is, this is a study of human nature at its very worst, revealing a moment when sinful thought turns to action and quite literally results in death. Showcased in this piece of scripture, for all eternity, is a tableau of betrayal that will result in the death of the Son of God. It's this act, in conjunction with Satan's influence, that is going to bring about the death of the Word who is with God and was God from the beginning. It's this particular act that is going to set off what scripture explains is the climax of all history. It is this portrait that showcases both the problem with and the solution for humanity. And we're gonna come to the solution a little bit later at Easter, and we're gonna touch on it, obviously, through the next couple Sundays. Uh, but in order to understand what the solution is, we need to spend some time thinking about what the problem is. And so let's start by saying that we know that there's this problem with the world, right? I think that that's just like a common human experience. Everyone's born in the world. We wake up one day and we're like, what is this place, right? And there is something wrong. We know that there is. Uh, everyone has asked that. And we, we, we look and we search and we feel this angst, right? And we try and put our finger on it. And we try and say, oh, what is it? And this is, this is where Scripture speaks in, right? And Scripture says, what is wrong with the world is found in the human heart itself. Where there are humans, there is wrongness. This wrongness finds its origin in a twisted heart. You may have heard the word sin. Each of our hearts is in a state of rebellion against God. And what that means is that God has made us to know him, right? God has made us to experience life with him. We were created a certain way, uh, but we have forgotten him. And in place of that, we follow the perversion of our own hearts. This is why Jesus will say, out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, theft, lies, and so what scripture does is it confronts us with the uncomfortable truth that the problem with the world is not capitalism. The problem with the world is not communism. It is not the left or the right. The problem with the world is not Trump supporters. The problem with the world is our hearts. It is from our hearts that war, terrorism, and evil comes. And that's the source. And until that polluted spring is changed, there will always be evil as we continue to choose death over life. And held up to us here in this piece of scripture, right, is the person of, uh, person of Judas. This is the end result of a heart that has chosen to reject Jesus in his desire for money in his pride, in his twisted heart, he says, I do not want you. To the life giver and sustainer of the universe. And I think that God looks at this in this moment and he says, okay, I will not force myself on you. I will let you choose.
And uh, this is where we come to our first affirmation. This is what I want to land on here. And it says, I will continuously work alongside God to cure my corrupted heart. Right? Scripture presents us with the central problem with humanity. The problem with the world, the problem with humanity is a corrupted heart. It is a heart that says, I do not want life, goodness, beauty. I do not want you, God. In place of that, I want to pursue my own selfish desires to hell with the consequences. And all of us have this, right? All of us have this twisting, this conflicting of desires. All of us have chosen selfishness. All of us have given birth to pain and evil. And all of us will continue in that until our heart is changed. And the story of Christianity is that you can try as hard as you want, but that you do not have the capability to untwist that heart. You do not have the capability to bend that piece of iron back into straight. And you don't have that ability, and you don't have that power, but God has come. God has come to bring us back to relationship with us. God has come, and he said, I will transform this heart. I will give you the power and the ability to transform this heart so that it is correctly attuned again. I will make you the way that you were meant to be. You cannot do it, but I will do it. I will make it possible. And the question here for each of us, at least according to my affirmation statement, right, is this, is are we working alongside God to cure our corrupted hearts? And, and what does this mean in practicality? It means are we pursuing him? Are we walking with him? Is Jesus our first love? And, and are we in a place where we're willing to go before God with our hearts and submit them and, and bring, him, bring them to him saying, we want you to transform this. Please transform this. I know that I have given birth to evil. I know that I have made this world a wicked place. And I know that some of that is small, and maybe, you know, maybe it's not nothing compared to someone else, but I know that I've done my own part. And I know that humanity as a whole continues to make this this way. And are we willing to come to God and say, here, take my heart, purify me, make this straight. I want life. I want beauty. I want goodness. I want to be transformed. And the biblical story is that God is not blind, right? He sees us in our plight. He sees us in our war with our hearts. And he looks on us with love and he says, I will provide a way out for you. I will provide a solution. I will provide the power and the ability for your hearts to change. I will provide a way for you to live in the way of life, to walk in the way of life. And this will cost me dearly, more dearly than you will ever know. But I will do this for you. Sorry. And uh, so Judas gives us a window, right? It's a window. Uh, a window into the common problem with humanity. And it serves uh, to highlight what is wrong in our world today. So that's the first character, right? That's the first character that kind of, in this drama, that tips the balance towards the Pharisees. And now we're going to introduce the second, more hidden character. The opportune time that he's been waiting for since the temptations in the wilderness has finally come. And this character is Satan. 
Uh, you probably noticed when we read through, you probably noticed verse 3. It probably jumped out at you, right? Uh, this is what it says. It says, Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. First time since Luke 4, Satan is named as an active player in the unfolding drama, and he enters Judas. And warning bells go off in your head, and you're like, whoop, 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 what's going on? Help, what does that mean? That's a good question. Uh, and I'm going to tell you right up front, we don't really know what that means. And maybe that's the way that it's supposed to be. Let me explain. It's not entirely clear what's going on here. Uh, this verse is a foggy window into a spiritual and cosmic dimension that we do not know a whole lot about. The Bible talks about this cosmic dimension, and it gives us some information. It tells us a lot more about our own dimension. It tells us l quite a bit less about this cosmic dimension. And uh, we should be on guard against extrapolating too much from this verse. And that's just on the simple basis that we don't have a lot to work with. Uh, the simple truth is that Scripture tells us some things, and it doesn't tell us very much about this, right? So all I'm saying here is this is a topic we need to enter into with humility, uh, with the option of like, hey, I'm going to listen to you. Let's talk. Let's, let's try and figure this out because there is not a lot of information that we have from Scripture on this. Uh, but I think that there are some things that we can understand from this. So let's focus on the things that we can understand. Uh, many think that possession is too strong of a description of what's going on here. Uh, whatever is happening, Scripture presents Judas as having responsibility in what is happening. Uh, and what that means is that Judas is not being taken over against his will. And I'm going to say, based on this, this concept of responsibility, that this cannot be possession in the classical sense. Where, and what I mean by that is this is not someone who's completely taken control over and has no control and has no responsibility for what they do. And so what we're left here is we're left kind of with like a minimal level and a maximal level. And we have these two poles, and we know that it's not those, and we know that the truth is somewhere between these two poles. And so on the minimal level, this is at the very least satanic direction and influence in the life of Judas. The very least, okay? That's the minimal level. I don't think you can say, oh, yeah, I, yeah that, that's what it is, minimally. And on the maximal side, it could be more than that, as long as it falls short of Judas not being responsible for his actions. Somewhere in there, that's the, that's the best I can do with this for right now. Maybe we can do a, a series on demonology sometime, but, uh, you know, maybe we'll hit the spiritual gifts first. We'll, we'll, I'll talk with Aaron. We'll see what happens after that, okay? <laughs> but what I want to say is that this gives us a foggy window into the cosmic dimension. Even the forces of evil have a desire to remove Jesus. There are sinister powers and sinister forces behind Jesus' death. Jesus' death is of cosmic significance. 
And one thing that we see here, the scripture says that there is a kingdom of light and there is a kingdom of darkness, right? And this kingdom of light is at war with this kingdom of darkness. There's this kingdom of light. I said that already, right? Life and beauty and goodness. This is the way that man is supposed to be. We were created to worship God and to be with him. This is, this is, this is rightness. This is justice. This is goodness. This is peace. This is hope. This is love. This is the way that it's supposed to be. And whenever we run into those things, they're echoes. This is, this is what the real thing is. And everything else is an echo and, and a sign pointing towards this. When you have a good time with a friend who is not a Christian and you sense love and you sense camaraderie and you sense fellowship, those are echoes of what you are finding in this kingdom of light, inherent in the very reality that has been constructed and that we live in is this kingdom of light. And it is at war with this kingdom of darkness that wants destruction, that wants to undermine and pervert what is good and beautiful. You'll notice that I carefully stepped on this side of the, uh, the gray line. Well, it's not all you can see that. And I stepped on this side of the gray line in the center of the floor here. Scripture does not identify a neutral ground. There, it does not seem to be any third-party Switzerland in this cosmic conflict. I have not found it. I have not read about it. It seems like there's kingdom of light, there's the kingdom of darkness. There is no neutral third party. And uh, this is where I want to draw out our second affirmation. Second and last, by the way. And uh, there's going to be, I think I'm supposed to tell someone when I have about 10 minutes left. So a uh, person out there who I'm supposed to tell, this is your signal that I have about 10 minutes left. <laughs> Whoever you are. But the affirmation that I want to pull out here is, Every one of our choices matters. I will choose life over death. And every single one matters because it's a, it, our actions on a cosmic level, we are siding with the kingdom of life or the kingdom of darkness. With every choice that we make, we choose to create and pursue light and life and beauty and truth and justice and love. Or we choose to sow death and destruction, pain, evil, chaos. And with every choice we make, we're choosing a side. And we are helping that side over and against the other one. And, and there's this, is there, a, is there a more heinous lie than this? There's a lie that says that we, that our choices do not matter. And I think that Scripture would ridicule that idea. I think Scripture would say that God has domain over every part of our life. And if there is an area where we are not submitting, where we are not bringing our heart forward to God and submitting it to Him, if there is an area where we are not doing that, then we are acting and playing for the other team in that area. And here's the scariest part, right? We talked about this. The scariest part is that Naturally, we have a bent towards evil. We have a twisted heart. And so if we are not consciously turning to Jesus, if we are not consciously inviting Jesus to guide us and to, and to help us and to show us and to enter into our life and to help us join in with the work of the kingdom of light, if we are not doing that, our default is sowing death. 
And so our inaction, I, I can't say, I don't know your heart, right? I don't even know my heart. You know, we do the best with what we have. But our default, scripturally, is going to be evil. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's scary. And so let me just clarify some things that I'm not saying, okay? Because I think this is almost as important as, uh, important as saying the positive things of what I am saying. And so I am not saying that someone who does not follow Jesus cannot do something nice or cannot do something kind or cannot do something loving or cannot do something good or cannot echo the reality that you would find in the kingdom of light and life and goodness. I'm not saying that someone who doesn't know Jesus cannot do that. There is a common grace thing. There is that we are made in the image of God thing. I think that, I think that even without following Jesus that we can echo some of these things. Uh, on a metaphysical level, though, I think that if these actions, these good actions, sorry, I'm getting confused, if these good actions are not done for the glory of God, then they are not sowing for the best possible world. They are not sowing for the righteousness and the glory of God, then they are sowing for a lesser good. I think if this is not done for the glory of God, then it is sowing a perversion of what we are called into. When we are called to so much more, we are called to something so much higher. We are called to something so much more full. Uh, so here, let me hit you with some questions. Is it better to love than to hate, regardless of whether you follow Jesus? Is it better to love than hate? Yes, I, I would say yes to that. I think that's true. Okay, good, thanks, Matt. Okay, I have another question for you. Uh, is there good in that? They chose to love instead of hate. Is there good in that, even if someone does not follow Jesus? And I'm going to say, yes, I think that there's good in that. I think that that is a good thing. I think they should continue to do that. I think they should choose that over the other one. And I think that is an echo of the good that's found in the kingdom of light. So yes, please do that. Okay, thanks, Matt. I agree. Is it just as good as when someone does that same action for the glory of God? And here's where I'm going to say no. I'm going to say this loving action done not to the glory of God has a form of godliness but denies the power. I'm going to say that that is only halfway there. Should they still love instead of hate? Yes. But it is not the real thing. It is not the full thing. Okay, another disclaimer. My message here is also not this. Do not hear, all of us should do more things so that we're better Christians. That is not what I'm saying. I'm going to say there is value in rest. There is value in spending time with friends and family. There is value in Sabbath. There is value in just resting in the presence of God. There is value in listening prayer. There is value in going to home church. And, uh, you know, talking with people about different ideas. And it's a good thing. So there's value in all of that. And all of that is part of the good. And so if you hear this as, this, our choices matter. If you're hearing this as, I have to do more, then you're not hearing me. All of our choices matter. Uh, even the choice of how much to rest. Uh, even the choice of whether to pursue Sabbath or not. Even the choice of how do I spend my free time. Uh, even the choice of how do I interact with the barista at Starbucks. 
And the central point here is our choices are important because with our choices, we sow either life or we sow death. And this happens on a personal level. And when a bunch of persons get together, what do you call that? That's like a corporate identity, right? So this happens on a personal level. We also sow life or death on a communal level. We sow that in ourselves. We sow that in Ottawa Valley Vineyard as a church. We sow that in Carlton Place. We sow that in Almont. And so as we invite Jesus to transform our hearts, right? As we invite Jesus to bring his kingdom in our lives, as we do this on the individual level, as we meet in home churches, as we meet in other places, as we dig into scripture, as we pray, as we listen for the voice of God, as we create spaces to learn from one another with our defenses down in a place of trust, in a place of love, in a place where we are not proving how intelligent and smart we are because we went to Bible college for two and a half years as we create spaces to show the love of God, and as, here, here's an aside. We're working on that one, by the way. We, I mean, coldest night of the year, hey, that's awesome. That's, that's beautiful. Youth retreat, also awesome. Um, uh, here's our mission statement, right? It's uh, encounter Jesus, be transformed, share his love. We're feeling a calling right now to further develop that last one. So this is a plug. If you have ideas, if you are very passionate about social change and justice and you want to see us as a church be more active and your spiritual gift lines up there and you're realizing that uh, other people (laughs) do not have that same spiritual gift and you're like, where are they? Please talk to me. We want to work on that one. But as we create spaces to show and to talk about the love that Jesus has for this town and that Jesus has for Alma, as we point to God the Father, in meaningful relationship with God the Son, walking in the power of God the Spirit, God's kingdom comes. And it comes in our own lives, and it comes in our church, and it comes in our community with power and presence. And Carlton Place and Almont will be suffused in the love of God, and we will see his power, and this place will be transformed. And the questions just from that that I want to leave hanging over you are, are we, because I'm included in this, are we choosing to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear him? Are we inviting him into every area of our life? Are we choosing to sow life or death. And uh, so we're winding things down, right? This is, but hopefully this series hopefully provides us with an opportunity to reflect, an opportunity to examine our hearts, and we'll sit at the feet of Jesus, and we'll reflect on his words, we'll reflect on our relationship with him, and as we come to Jesus during these times, we'll have the opportunity to choose to invite him in. We'll have the opportunity to work on our hearts alongside of him. We'll have the opportunity to doing this knowing that our choices really do matter. Because with our choices, we align ourselves with one side or another on a cosmic scale. And so I'm going to close by just reading an Old Testament scripture uh, that seems particularly relevant here. So so what's going to happen is I'm going to read this to you. So I want you just to close your eyes and let it sink in. And uh, then we're going to sit in silence for 
an uncomfortable amount of time and just let you reflect. So if you just want to close your eyes, I'll read it. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the question that we're going to just let sit over us for an uncomfortable amount of time is, who will you choose, choose to serve? Father, we come before you with our, with our twisted hearts, knowing that we have contributed to the evil in this world. And we come to you saying, we want life. We want goodness. We want peace. We want justice. We want hope. We want transformation. And it, we know that you say that this requires transformation in us first before it ever happens on a grander scale. And so, God, we say, please come and transform us. We submit to you our hearts. Uh, We give you our church. And we say, please, make us of one voice. Make us of one accord. Fill us and flood us with love and hope and peace and goodness, forgiveness, joy. God, please take us, transform us. Uh, We need you. And uh, we love you. And uh, we want to say that we choose you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Vineyard, visit ovv.ca.